You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. And Solaray, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to this latest edition of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy. Joining me as usual is ITK analyst David Lynch. David, how are you? Giles, I'm well. I trust all our listeners are enjoying uh, talking about electricity and keeping fully informed. And uh, we've got one of the uh, great figures from the industry, or at least the history of the industry, uh, as our special guest today. Well, that's right. Yes, we're talking to Ross Garneau, uh, Professor Ross Garneau. Um, he of the famous Garneau Reviews that uh, were done back in 2007-2009 and helped design the Labor... Uh, Greens climate policy, of which we still benefit from things like the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and ARENA and the Renewable Energy Target, um, which is um, just about met, or more than met, as some would say. Anyway, he's just um, he did a compilation of um, six different briefings at the um, at the start of the year and has put all this together in a book um, about Australia's electricity future and also the possibilities of a superpower. Look, David, why don't we just sort of hop into that first of all and then get back to discuss some of the keen news of the week because there's, there's a bit going around, as there usually is. So uh, let's, 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 let's do it. Let's do it. Let's listen to uh, Professor Roscarno. I talked to him earlier this week. Roscarno, thanks for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Hello, Giles. You're publishing a new book, Superpower, Australia's Low Carbon Opportunity. Um, my understanding, it's a well, it's more than just a compilation, but um, uh, you gave a bit of a preview into what you're writing in a series of six lectures um, earlier this year. Tell us basically, tell our listeners what the basic premise of the book is. Well, the book goes over the, the story of... Uh... Uh, of what's happened related to climate change and the energy transition since I did my two big studies, uh, one for all the state premiers and territory chief ministers and the prime minister presented in 2008 and then the second for the multi-party parliamentary committee on climate change chaired by Prime Minister Gillard uh, and submitted in 2011. So it looks at what's happened since then. Uh, in uh, our understanding of the science and the ethics of climate change, uh, of the economics, uh, and uh, assesses uh, what's changed and comes to the conclusion that uh, while the advance of knowledge has broadly confirmed the scientific uh, expectations 10 years ago, uh, it's reduced uncertainty without radically changing average expectations. there have been, nevertheless, important developments in in ethics that's uh, helped us to understand how our responsibilities uh, uh, lie in doing something about this problem. And, uh, uh, a lot's happened in the economics, mainly in the direction of reducing the costs of doing something about climate change. And it just happens that the economic changes uh, put Australia in a highly favourable position uh, if we embrace the zero emissions future, of course, so uh, uh, if if we uh, go uh, reluctantly into that future, then we won't grab the opportunity. But the opportunity is there for us to do very well in the zero emissions world economy. 
how recently has it been that we've actually understood the, the opportunity that's in front of us? Because the um, technology costs of wind and solar and storage and other technologies such as hydrogen have, um, have come down significantly um, over the last 10 years. Was this quicker than you'd expected? Well, certainly the reductions of costs are quicker than I expected and uh, I can't pretend otherwise because I'm elaborately on the public record uh, with my views of 11 years ago, uh, the model uh, in my, that lies behind the 2008 uh, climate change review that I started on my own with my own uh, research team and then became a joint exercise with the Commonwealth Treasury uh, when um, Kevin Rudd made the exercise a joint uh, state and federal uh, initiative late in 2007. That model ain't uh, had to assume uh, rates of technological change, rates of reduction in costs of uh, the new forms of energy, uh, and we wrote those assumptions in through audaciously through to the end of the 21st century. So there's no escaping um, uh, the the errors when you've made them. Uh, I consulted closely at the time uh, with uh, people at the frontiers of uh, science and technology. Uh, in Australia, Japan, China, Korea, the United States, uh, Europe, uh, and uh, wrote into those assumptions an assumption of uh, a few percent per annum reduction in solar PV costs over, over the couple of decades after the time I was writing. And uh, uh, what's happened is has vastly uh, exceeded that in the first mm. decade. My report came out, costs came down by 85%. So I dramatically underestimated it. And uh, back in 2008 and 2011, I, I did draw attention to Australia's exceptionally rich endowment of renewable resources. But at that time, uh, even with this great endowment of solar and wind and, and for the future, uh, wave energy, uh, uh, geothermal energy, uh, uh, despite this uh, great uh, endowment, uh, the there were going to be costs, substantial costs in the transition, and my calculation showed that we should accept those costs because the, the cost of not doing anything exceeded the cost of doing things. But uh, the way the way the cost of the transition has come down, uh, we would now see a benefit in concerted uh, uh, early action uh, in the transition. Hmm. And how is this changing the conversation, or is it changing the conversation yet? It hasn't much yet, but this book, uh, uh, I hope, will change the conversation. That's uh, that's its job. Yes. So, so tell us what is possible then. I think um, you've previously talked about you know what Australia could achieve um, just in transitioning to renewables very quickly, and also in manufacturing and um, and also in exports. But let's start with the electricity grid. You've said that Australia could transition to one hundred percent renewables quite quickly um, by the early twenty thirties and um, and come out ahead um, cost wise. Yeah, and have more secure and reliable power because we don't have a particularly secure and reliable system now compared with uh, what we'd like and what we used to have. Um, where it, it would the, the grid would look different. Uh, we've got to have in mind the the the, the uh, economy that we're building for. Uh, if we take advantage of our opportunity as as a superpower of the zero emissions world economy, then um, we'll be producing three times as much electricity in the 2030s uh, as we are now. Uh, we'll be processing a lot of our minerals uh, into metals. 
uh, we'll have a lot of other industry based on uh, low-cost energy. Uh, of course, we'll uh, be driving electric cars, either directly uh, electric through batteries or indirectly through uh, hydrogen. And uh, that will increase uh, electricity demand uh, uh, by half by the time it's converted the train fleets and the bus and the truck fleets. Uh, so uh, total uh, electricity demand will be three times as big. So we'll need a different grid, uh, one with uh, more long-distance, uh, high-voltage transmission. Uh, and uh, it's not going to be very easy to get from here to there. I, I, I anticipated the need for this uh, back in 2008 and 2011. I wrote quite extensively about it, made certain recommendations like... Uh, uh, a proposal to uh, introduce uh, scale-efficient uh, network extensions. But uh, uh, the Australian energy sector has done very well uh, from not doing very much. It's been extremely profitable. It's been able to put up prices to maintain high returns on investment uh, 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 while uh, not meeting uh, the needs of a growing uh, economy or potentially growing economy. And having felt the need for, for change. Regulatory agencies in the past uh, were just part of that backward-looking, slow-moving uh, energy sector. Uh, so uh, we've got to get out of all that. Uh, we won't get into uh, our potential super, superpower status uh, without some work and without some change, but uh, it's all there for us to do if we get our heads in the right space. Mm. How do we um, how do how do we get the um, energy industry to move on? How do we get the regulators to catch up and to be proactive and to change the rules to allow the significant um, redesign of the system that um, that we must have? I think we've got to be realistic. Uh, the, the existing system is not going to change very fast, and so uh, the old dinosaur is going to uh, stay on uh, lumbering around for a while. Uh, so. Uh, my main emphasis is uh, in making it possible for the fleet of foot, those who are doing new things, innovating, uh, growing the future to be able to do things outside the old system and uh, uh, and to be rewarded when it's providing services that are helpful uh, to the established uh, regulated system. And then later on, uh, the presence of an efficient, globally competitive uh, new system can assist in the transformation of the old system. But... Uh, I think it's unrealistic to think that in a, in a short period of time uh, we'll, we'll see transformation of what's already there. Mm. I suppose it could happen, though, couldn't it, if we actually had a a government or a series of sort of state and federal governments that kind of got that future, understood it, and once you see what the future might look like, then you can work backwards and see and work out how you get there. Yeah, it could in principle, and and uh, uh, we're in a better space than we were half a dozen years ago or a few years ago, uh, AEMO uh, uh, is, is today under Audrey Silverman's leadership uh, very uh, much aware of, uh, uh, of the shape of the future and uh, is seeking to introduce many innovations. But uh, 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 and, uh, Audrey uh, uh, will uh, be one of the people launching my book uh, at the University of Melbourne on November the 13th and I look or very much to that. So, so we're in much better shape than we were, uh, but uh, it, it's hard to turn an old machine around. Uh, there's a lot of political culture, a lot of political economy to change, 
uh, and uh, uh, it's unrealistic to, to think that we can uh, wave a magic wand to make that all go away. So, so uh, uh, let, let's uh, try to change that as fast as we can uh, to make it globally competitive as fast as we can. But uh, mm. in the transition, the main game at first will be uh, doing globally competitive things outside the old system. And how does that look like? Does that um, you've talked about high voltage, um, direct um, current um, HVDC power lines? You're talking about the need to have three times, you know, three times as much power as we do now, and presumably that all needs to be done with wind and solar because that's the cheapest option. I guess we're talking about a hydrogen economy here, particularly at that scale. Um, does this look like? vast arrays of wind and solar in the outback connected with transmission lines and industries set up, you know, in the region or at the end of those lines to do those um, green metal production, as you as you call it? Yeah, I think that it does. Uh, uh, so I think that the existing transmission systems have got a very important role to play. And early in the life of, of uh, the, the, the new economy, uh, the zero emissions economy, uh, I, I think that that the old centres of power generation in the coal fields uh, uh, could have a good role to play. Uh, places like uh, Port Augusta and Wyala in the upper Spencer Gulf, uh, Collie in the southwest of West Australia, the Trove Valley, Newcastle, uh, Gladstone on the Queensland coast. Uh, uh, but the transmission lines will play the role of bringing low-cost renewable energy back in to power uh, industry there rather than taking coal energy outside. Uh, uh, but the uh, the linkage in the end has to be to the low-cost uh, solar and wind resources, uh, which uh, mostly are not adjacent to the existing high-voltage network. So, so we do have to transform that network. It's going to take some bold commitments from certain people to actually start this to happen. Who's going to be doing it? Uh, yes, it will take bold commitments, and uh, uh, and there have been times in Australian history when governments could have led that. Uh, that was the early uh, history of Australian development success when we were the richest country in the world in the 19th century uh, with uh, the um, public sector uh, planning and initiative giving us the, the, the framework that that's still uh, leads to Melbourne being the world's nearly most livable city. Uh, that's all on the basis of, uh, of planning and infrastructure investment from 100 or 120 years ago. But uh, uh, that uh, there's the, that sort of le uh, public leadership is, a, is not around uh, at the moment and we've got to be realistic. So so I think it's going to be led for, uh, by the private sector. There are people around the world uh, who... Uh, uh, who, who are doing uh, the sorts of things that need to be done in Australia? We've been lucky enough to have some some of that in Australia. Uh, the the uh, big battery in South Australia has helped. Has been one of the things that's helped South Australia now have more uh, secure uh, and reliable power. Uh, and uh, uh, now, for the first time ever, uh, cheaper wholesale power than Victoria. Uh, so. Uh, uh, and uh, international entrepreneurs have played a, a role in that. Uh, the responses will be there uh, once uh, once we stop getting in the way of people who are prepared to build the, the future. Uh, so I see that as the main way it starts to happen rather than through government leadership itself.
Mm. I mean, over the 10 years, I mean, you, you mentioned at the start of this interview that the climate science has not really changed. I mean, probably there's less certainty now, more certainty about what we're sort of heading into. Yet we have these new technologies now which actually offer a cost-effective solution, whereas before we thought that it might be a bit of a cost, but it will probably be less costly than doing nothing, as you said before. Does that make you both more optimistic and also more frustrated at the same time about the lack of action? Uh, well, uh, if it wasn't for these reduction in costs, I'd be deeply pessimistic. <laughs> uh, uh, but the fact that the, the costs have come down so much, and it's not just um, the, the cost of equipment for renewable energy and storage, uh, the, the, the transformational reduction in the cost of capital, when most of the the, the uh, new energy and uh, and the industries using new energy, uh, most of their costs are capital costs. So interest rates coming down to near zero um, radically reduces costs. Well, current costs are very low and very unlike uh, coal or gas where uh, the current costs, the operating costs of buying the coal, producing and buying it are a high proportion of costs. So... The, the fact that the economics have moved so much in favour uh, of the transition uh, does mean that um, we, uh, we, we can contemplate uh, moving a long way quite fast uh, once we start getting in the way, of, uh, once we get out of the way of the future. Uh, so uh, I, I'm, I am optimistic from that point of view. Now, uh, we've done a good job over the last 11 years of uh, making the most obvious and uh, simple things uh, hard. Uh, but um, that hasn't always been the Australian way. We used to be able to get some complicated things right. Uh, there's nothing uh, genetically in the Australian uh, genome that uh, uh, that stops us getting things right, right forever. So uh, I haven't given up on that. <laughs> it seems to me that um, most of the experts and most of the people of the industry and the financiers and the analysts and um, everybody else seems to understand what this opportunity is, but there just seems to be two important uh, roadblocks here, which is the political will and the power of the um, in the incumbents, the people who have existing interests and existing assets, which might be swept aside by these new technologies. Yes, uh, and, and in the Australian political culture at the moment and political economy, uh, the, the role of rents is uh, much bigger than it used to be and the, the role of, uh, uh, of rents in financing the political system is much bigger than it used to be. And I think uh, uh, um, rent earning business is much more effective in controlling the political system than it used to be. Uh, so uh, we, we we have to recognise that this is the reality, and that makes a lot of things hard. Uh, but uh, uh, that, that that means that uh, change is slowed down. Uh, you do get um, some barriers to change, but uh, once we break those walls, uh, things can move pretty quickly. Do you think we might have to be dragged into our um, our, our future? By, um, by the international community and other countries. We hear that countries like Japan and Korea and Germany are hungry for the sort of um, you know, um, renewable energy and green energy products that um, Australia could produce. Do you think that they will actually provide the sufficient pull effect or will they be able to go elsewhere and find those opportunities in other, in other, in other locations? I think that's going to be quite important. Uh, I chair the board of the Australian-German um, uh, energy transition hub and uh, we recently had a meeting in Melbourne with 
uh, leaders of uh, business, uh, government, uh, um, technological research uh, from Germany uh, out here and uh, uh, in Europe at the moment, uh, and that, that includes uh, Britain, uh, whether or not you think of Britain these days as part of Europe, but uh, in, in greater Europe, uh, uh, there's acceptance that uh, we are headed towards zero emissions uh, sooner rather than later. The alternative's too horrible to contemplate. And so they, they are thinking about uh, uh, how they can, can produce steel, produce uh, aluminium, produce uh, uh, chemical manufactures with zero emissions. And, uh, uh, and they are contemplating uh, trade restrictions on imports that don't embody the zero emissions approaches. Uh, now, a, a big part of the world economy like Europe taking that step it would do th two things. It would uh, uh, put some penalties on not being part of the international effort, but uh, it would also uh, introduce very great incentives for getting it right. For example, if you could get uh, steel into Europe if it was made uh, from hydrogen with zero emissions, uh, but not if it's made from coal with high emissions, then... Uh, uh, there'd be a strong reason for investing in Australia where hydrogen is going to be much cheaper than in the rest of the world. So so what are the countries are doing can, will have quite a big uh, uh, pull effect through incentive and opportunity and, uh, and the expansion of the new is what will eventually undermine the old. Mm. I'm just wondering if something like the aluminium industry, for instance, we've heard a lot of talk in recent times about from Rio Tinto about the pressure on its aluminium smelters in New Zealand and Australia, um, high costs, um, competition with low carbon sourced um, aluminium um, elsewhere. Australia obviously has a medium to long term opportunity to sort of change to um, renewables and cheaper energy, but do we have the time? I mean, is it. Can we react quickly enough to save these aluminium smelters, or will we have to sort of start from scratch, as it were, again? It's um, it's difficult when you've got an aluminium smelter relying on an existing coal smelter, a coal-fired generator to to provide its power. Um, you know, what sort of latitude do we have? Uh, well, each of the big smelters in Australia will face big decisions relatively soon. Um, Bell Bay, uh, which I think is probably our oldest. Uh, existing smelter, uh, old smelter still producing us down in Tasmania. It's got a good future because a combination of Tasmanian wind power and uh, backed up by Tasmanian hydro uh, provides an opportunity for uh, a really low-cost, reliable power that will be very attractive for uh, energy-intensive industries. But but uh, our big aluminium smelters in Gladstone, Newcastle, Portland uh, are all based on high-cost uh, coal. They're, they're all beneficiaries either of government arrangements or of uh, power contracts signed some time ago, uh, and there's no prospect of coal-based power being anything like globally competitive when the government subsidies go or the uh, old contracts are negotiated, so uh, renegotiated. So those um, smelters are, are, are gone unless we uh, do things differently. But the good news is that certainly in the case of those three uh, smelters and and uh, I'm pretty familiar with their circumstances. Uh, uh, a bit of innovation could lead to globally competitive supply of power based uh, mainly on uh, um, uh, solar and wind, uh, firmed in different way in different places, to, depending on the local firming opportunity. But uh, uh, get down to the costs that we can get uh, 
firm renewable power down to, and those places not only survive but uh, but expand. Hmm. Do you say in your book exactly what sort of price we can expect um, in the near or medium or long term future from essentially wind and solar backed by firming? Uh, well, I discuss that. I don't say don't say I expect it. I say we could do it if we did things right. I don't presume we'll do things right. We don't always. Uh, um, but uh, to be globally competitive for that sort of industry, you, you need to uh, be able to deliver power not much above thirty-five dollars US, which is low fifties Australian, and that's quite feasible uh, if we do things right with wind and solar and firming. Wind, solar, and firming, uh, firming differently in different places, uh, um, and uh, firming can be done in in, in different ways. Uh, I, I do discuss uh, the reliability challenge, and uh, uh, I do say that if we that um, uh, you could back up and, and render reliable uh, um, very high proportion of uh, solar and uh, wind in the Australian eastern uh, power system uh, th- through the snow. It'd be a very expensive way of doing it, but. Uh, uh, if, if we're going to build the snowy anyway, we, we certainly wouldn't want to make everyone pay the actual costs of producing it, and that could be a way of, uh, of uh, f- affirming the, the grid. But I make another suggestion, uh, which I call the, the SNEG, the, the, the snowy uh, um, energy guarantee, where uh, we separate from uh, snowy hydro uh, the... Um, uh, the pumped hydro assets, the asset that's already there and the feasibility study on Snowy 2.2 and give a new statutory corporation which owns those assets the job of underwriting reliability uh, and doing that in the lowest cost way. That's its, that would be its mission as a uh, statutory authority. And I'd, I'd allow it to use the uh, Snowy 2.0 uh, uh, feasibility study if that turns out to be the lowest cost way of, uh, of guaranteeing reliability but uh, they could do anything else as well they could contract in services from other pumped hydro so, uh, storage uh, they could contract in um, battery storage uh, they could contract in uh, demand management uh, they could contract in gas peaking uh, and uh, and deliver reliability at the lowest possible uh, cost uh, we know that it that we could stabilise the whole system with uh, the, the snowy, and the new statutory authority would have the job of uh, uh, using uh, snowy two point two if that turns out to be a cheap way of doing it. It sounds like you might think that there might be cheaper alternatives. Oh, yeah. I, I, th- there are, but uh, but there's a lot of uh, political weight behind snowy two point zero. So uh, if it's going to be done anyway, we might as well make good use of it. <laughs> Excellent. Roscoe, now look, we could talk for much longer, but I know you've got to go and very busy. Um, we do look forward to the launch of your book and we do hope that it helps change the conversation um, in Australia um, and as quickly as possible. Um, well, thanks very about, much. Yeah, I talk about uh, building a bridge over the chasm between the rather unproductive place we're in and uh, the, the, the future place we could be. And I hope the book helps Australians to uh, cross that bridge. Well, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast, Roscano. Thanks, Giles. Uh, good to talk to you. And that was Professor Ross Garneau. Um, I should point out also that he um, remains on the board of Simic Energy, the uh, Sanjeev Gupta 
um, energy play in Australia. Um, David, um, it's really gratifying to hear about um, what we could do in the future and the opportunities, although I guess the, um, the hydrogen economy doesn't seem quite as far away as it did, say, you know, everyone used to talk about it being 30 years away. It seems a lot closer, but still probably 10 years away, but maybe we should be thinking about it. Uh, undoubtedly, uh, we don't have to think about it because everyone else is, Giles. Uh, we can stand on the uh, sidelines and eat some popcorn and uh, watch it develop. Uh, as we do. I, <laughs> as we do, but uh, I will say, you know, that whilst Australia certainly has a great position in renewable energy, uh, there's lots of countries that can produce solar energy, maybe at a bit higher cost, but that, uh, you know, in, the reality is when we look at making hydrogen for export, uh, and you're competing against, say, solar in India or something like that, uh, then you have to sort of take into account the transport cost of hydrogen uh, versus the cheaper cost of producing the solar in Australia. So uh, there's, it's not the economics of it uh, and whether it's going to work commercially are, are far from settled. And I guess the hydrogen uh, science itself may well develop a lot over the next few years. If we we're incredibly lucky, we'd find a more energy efficient way to do the electrolysis part of it, for instance. Uh, so. So, as I say, far too early to be making too many comments. Yeah, it's interesting, though, but it's nice to sort of see the conversation turning around from um, there's already too much wind and solar in the grid, which is what we hear from our current energy minister, to all the possibilities that may lay before us, um, both, you know, for our own well, grid well, well, and well, the future. Well, Giles, just this too much uh, wind and solar is, is a nonsense, you know. Like, the, ERCO has been, ERCOT has been... Uh, at 19% wind for, 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 for two or three years already. And California is well ahead of that on the solar, solar side of things. So, so the NEM is only just catching up uh, with those uh, big regions in the United States. And uh, we can certainly and will go quite a, quite a lot further. The other thing I think that came out of Ross's uh, sort of, uh, I guess, slightly uh, social commentary, uh, but something I think about a lot is whether we should have uh, some kind of industry, structured industry policy. You, you don't necessarily want to go as far as, as planning things out and picking too many winners. But I do think that the market, the government uh, should be have, a, have an eye on what is likely to happen. And uh, if not an invisible hand, uh, it, the, there needs to be a, a few, uh, how can I put it, uh, steering lights or, 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 or the, so that we can see whether it remains sensible for us to be energy intensive and whether, whether it's worth supporting some of our existing energy intensive industries to see them through what could be an extended transition period. Uh, aluminium is an obvious example. I mean, is the aluminium industry going to be competitive in a in a largely renewable world. I don't even think that's completely clear. Yes, well, interesting. Um, Simon Holmes, of course, actually wrote an interesting piece about aluminium industry on um, in The Guardian and um, might have his contribution on this podcast sometime soon. Um, look, it's interesting. Um, look, we keep on banging on about this, about this sort of, you know, the readiness and this and this plan and a vision. But sometimes, you know, you've got to sort of bang your head against a brick wall or bang your head on the table. Um, someone actually pointed out to me, um, a study done by Vencorp, which is the pre predecessor to AEMO. This is way back in 2008 and 2009, signed off by the then Victorian Energy Minister, um, Batchelor, um, talking about all the things that needed to be done in the Victorian grid to sort of, you know, obviously deal with the essential transition. And there's this wonderful list of things, which items, piece by piece, the things, the additions that would needed to be done to the Victorian grid to deal with the influx of renewables by 2019 and beyond. And do you know what? The by 2019 done, not a single one of them have actually been done. 
and we wonder why we've got all these problems. And, uh, you know, just this week, earlier on this week, um, I wrote about the forecast for the next downgrades of MLFs. And um, look, it's actually good news in some parts of the um, some parts of the grid in North Queensland, for instance, and in parts of uh, northern New South Wales due to sort of changes in load and sort of transmission flows. But in Western Victoria and Northwest, sorry, Northwest Victoria and Western New South Wales, it's a bit of a disaster zone. Yes, yes, you published an article that showed those changes in MLFs. Uh, and uh, look, uh, we can rearrange the, the deck chairs and there'll be individual winners and losers. But the bottom line is, as, as it's been the case, and I'm sick of saying it, it just isn't enough transmission. Uh, we wouldn't have all these MLF uh, chopping and changing if we had more transmission. I don't know how much is enough. You don't need enough transmission, as, as I keep saying, for every single generator to do whatever they want. But we need more transmission than we've got now. Uh, until then, it's just rearranging deck chairs. But it, you know, it affects the financial uh, cases for some of these generators. I, we've known for, for years and years and years, and it's not disputed by anyone, that the main driver of the required price, and therefore the cost paid by consumers in the end, uh, for all of these wind and solar projects is the cost of capital. You know, their variable operating costs are minimal. So you can get a lot, if you've got revenue certainty, uh, then you can drive the cost of capital down and you can reduce the price by 10, 20% over what what's required, uh, the price you require if the, if the project has uncertain revenue, like it's fully exposed to the spot market or it's fully exposed to MLF factors that move around by 20%. So in the end, these changes in the MLF factors are costing consumers. It's consumers that will have to pay. The current owner of the power station may uh, go broke, uh, uh, but the thing will still sit there putting out, putting out electricity and it will just end up being we're getting a higher price and, and consumers will pay because we didn't build enough transmission and fix the system up early enough. Well, absolutely, yes. And there's still a bit of way to go on exactly how these MLFs will be um, assessed and, and delivered. Um, um, still a lot of toing and froing on the Kagati review, which we've discussed before, which also discuss, um, which incorporates some of these with locational pricing and other factors. But look, let's move on to some good news. You wrote a really nice piece this week, um, um, just updating where we're at with wind and solar. And it's been rather positive in the last um, in, in the last couple of months. And on an annualised basis, David, I think you've got wind and solar 18.7%. And tell us what happened to coal. Well, the coal, coal share of generation has fallen away. As it happens for this particular 30-day period, it's a bit of an exaggeration. I don't seasonally adjust the numbers. My goodness me. Uh, we don't seasonally adjust that was the numbers. A class, that, that, sorry, that was a glass of water going on my laptop, and I'm just holding up the laptop now to make sure the glass of water goes somewhere else. So hopefully we stay online, but keep on going. Um, uh, and so coal share has dropped away, but some of it's been picked up by gas. But I, I think actually the good news was that the uh, spot prices have been falling uh, during this period. Um, and, and I expect as the wind and, and solar share keep, keeps picking up, that average spot prices are now going to continue to fall versus a year ago. Uh, and the, well, the true test of this will be, I suppose, in the March quarter of this year. Uh, but if those prices uh, do fall, that's the good news we've been waiting for for a long time. And it's important to remember, Giles, as as, uh, as you've pointed out uh, this month, uh, uh, that really it's the rooftop solar that's the single biggest driver. And incredible uh, nine point something gigawatts, I think your, your article mentioned, of rooftop solar in Australia now. And it's only, it seems to me, like yesterday, we were talking about four or five gigawatts. 
Well, absolutely, yes. I mean, um, and, and quite extraordinary. Um, 2007 megawatts added in the month of October, which beats the previous monthly record by about 15%. And um, and on that, um, sub, uh, that subject of prices that you're talking about, um, prices across the grid went down in the month of October. It was really reasonably mild month. But it was really interesting to note that South Australia, with um, 55% share of generation for wind and solar, actually had the lowest um, electricity prices of any state in the grid and they haven't done that for more than a decade and um, are usually way above and um, you know one swallow does not make a summer it's going to be interesting to see what happens um, in the March quarter but um, I think South Australia is probably reasonably well placed um, Lake Bonnie just started um, playing around um, in the grid the Lake Bonnie battery sorry started playing around in the grid this week and um, AGL um, did a formal opening for the Barker Inlet Fast Start Generators, which would be an extra 210 megawatts of capacity this summer. And um, it not, was not just uh, two, not just uh, an extra 210 megawatts, but uh, it's very fast start, uh, 210 megawatts. It's the first large-scale reciprocating engine uh, gas plant that has been built in Australia, and and so that's it is a very well suited, uh, if you must have gas, uh, firming plant for the wind in South Australia. Uh, and look, uh, just to put that nine and a half uh, gigawatts in context, and it's going. To, um, there are two more things to say about it. Firstly, the average demand in the NEM is, you know, a bit to say 25 gigawatts. So that nine gigawatts probably produces at like six gigawatts or seven gigawatts of maximum output on any one day. So it's at, at, at its peak, it can be effectively a, a third of, of of output already. And guess what? When we come back in four or five years, even as the monthly rate slows down from this incredible pace of 200 megawatts a month, and it, and it must slow down at some point, we're still going to be looking at, you know, like 13 or 14 gigawatts or something like that by 2025. Uh, this uh, It's going to be absolutely the most uh, powerful force. Now, you know, if you're a uh, utility solar developer, you have to compete against that, you know. And so this is the other big challenge that everyone needs to find is that we have this fantastic uh, solar resource, but we have to find a way such that utility solar developers can earn their cost of capital, even though we know they're really not going to be needed in the middle of the day. They need to generate in the middle of the day and have their output used at night. So that, that's, that's the sort of policy challenge that the market has to manage. More storage, I say, and it was interesting that um, Cleanco, um, on their first day of trading, we, we talked to um, Jackie Walters, the chairwoman of um, Cleanco, last episode, and um, it was interesting to see that the next day they um, they started trading and um, they had Wyvernhoe switched on during the day. Um, so that's a bit of storage. Um, Wyvernhoe is now in operation, and you've written a couple of pieces about that, about how little it's been used, because um, it was probably contrary to the interests of the uh, of the then owner, but um, interesting and maybe a bit disappointing to see that Gen X is really struggling to get the numbers together. Um, Unsu- disappointing, but unsurprising. Uh, this project always looked, uh, uh, I guess, uh, look, the first thing I'd say is a heads of agreement is, is nothing, it's like about the equivalent of going on a date. And sometimes it's not much more than the exchange of a business card, if I can put it that way. You, you cannot uh, go to the bank with a heads of agreement, you know, uh, you need a contract. And the, 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 problem with, uh, the problem is that the business case for that pumped hydro in Queensland, in my opinion, when I looked at it, always looked uh, looks sketchy. Still, it generates a lot of electricity out there and it's got all that cheap finance, so it may still end, end up getting up, but, you, you know... Well, why, why is it sketchy then? I mean, they've got they've got so much solar. They've got this huge duck, solar duck curve. I mean, surely that's the best place you can put it. 
you need to get something like uh, 90 to $100 uh, a day every day. Like, if, as you say, Wyvern, they're competing, for instance, against Wyvernhoe, and Wyvernhoe doesn't have any capital cost at all. It already exists. I see, yes. Okay. And... So, um, uh, there you go. Go on, sorry. <laughs> We're stalled and we're stuck. Um, anyway, um, what other news do we need to wrap up, David? I think that's about it, Giles, uh, for this week. I, I, I want to get on and have us talking about uh, the market redesign efforts that the uh, uh, Energy Security Board is undertaking. I've been reading a lot about that and thinking very hard myself about uh, looking at the UK market and the European market. And it's important to understand how the European carbon price has been very effective. And I think, Giles, it's about time your website started uh, uh, getting behind this push for it to reintroduce a carbon price into Australia, because uh, in the in the end, it's the thing that across the economy that would be most useful in, in uh, the most technology neutral uh, and, and, and would set us on the path to that we can't plan that we could plan around. So, you know, you can fiddle around with market design until the cows come home, have eaten the tiny bit of grass that's left, if any, they can find any. But it's not going to achieve anything if you design. Uh, the market without having a carbon objective in mind and right now that's the task the ESB has unfortunately been tasked with. <laughs> well I'm going to take that as a comment David and a very good one and that's why we have you on this podcast. Um, just briefly to thank the sponsors of the podcast um, Solaray Energy and Evergen. Um, do invite you to check out their products and um, listen to their messages and thank you very much for your ongoing support. David great to chat and we'll be back next week um, and the week after and the week after that and hopefully we'll be talking to some of those capacity market experts very soon. Bye. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. With technology developed in Australia with the CSIRO, Evergen customers can maximise the return on their sustainable energy investment. Visit evergen.com.au and take control of your energy bills. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by Solaray Energy. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today.